Hey everybody, this is Rave Telsh, and this is episode 17 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Running a little late this week, sorry about that. I have overbooked myself for the last two weeks. Got a lot of guests lined up to record episodes, but... I always underestimate the amount of time it's going to take me to watch a movie or rewatch a movie and then prepare and then record and then put all the pieces together that I need. So I have had to postpone a couple of recordings and I'm grateful to those guests who've been willing to reschedule with me and hopefully I'll be caught up by the end of this week, but it caused the show to run a little late. So apologies to those of you who look forward to this in your feed Wednesday morning. Uh, hopefully I'll be back on track after this week ends. So getting straight into our Friday inquiry, because each week on social media, I post a question on Friday related to or inspired by that week's movie. Uh, and this time it was inspired by last week's conversation about the fifth element. Uh, Roger Ebert commented in his review about how there was a little too much of Ruby Rod in the movie. And so I asked, who's a character you felt there was too much of in a movie? And I immediately got the first answer that came to my mind, both on Twitter and on Facebook. James Jackson and D.E. Medus both posted Jar Jar Binks. And yes, there was way too much Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars movies. Uh, I think anything more than a background walkthrough was too much time. Chris Eklund posted a gif of Willie Scott from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which, you know, the only problem with her is all the noise. Chris Talent responded that it would be Alan Ruck from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He stole all the scenes he was in and wore a Gordie Howe jersey. Now, I find that an interesting choice because some discussions say that Cameron is actually the hero of the story. He's not necessarily the main character, but that it's actually Cameron's story because he's the character who grows. So how could you have too much of a character who already is playing second fiddle in his own story? So I I don't know that I agree with that one, but it's an interesting choice. And Jason Harris said, I'm not a fan of unreasonable or idiot characters like the police chief in Die Hard or Neil's father in Dead Poet Society. And I agree with that. It's a movie trope to have that character who is unreasonable or idiotic, and it does provide some much-needed comedic relief. I don't think any of us didn't laugh at the God, I hope that's not a hostage line in Die Hard, but he does reach a point of insufferability in that movie before we get to that punchline. This week, we are going back in time a bit. I just said last week how I had hoped to get into more classic movies, and this week I got to do that with a classic Japanese film, Rashomon from 1950. And if you have not seen this movie, you really should go see it. It is a phenomenal film and totally worth checking out. It's one of my favorite films, even though I hadn't seen it in over a decade. And I was really happy when Nick Irvin brought it to the show. Uh, You can find him on the Canyon Brats podcast, as we talked about later in the show. But Nick provided a great conversation, and you could hear over the course of our dialogue that he was a little intimidated or a little nervous about recording this. And I, I don't know why. He was fantastically fun to talk to about this movie and about Kurosawa. And if I do end up breaking my no repeat guests, he's a guest that I'd happily have back on in a heartbeat, which I've said about almost all of my guests, so I I don't know why I keep saying that. But I will give a trigger warning about this week's choice. Um, It's not graphic in any way, but there is a murder and rape at the heart of the movie. And again, it's not graphic in any way, but the way the rape is handled might set some people off. I certainly had this experience watching this movie with my girlfriend that she was so focused on the way the rape was handled that I I couldn't talk with her about the aspects of the movie that I had hoped she would get out of it, that I'd hope anybody would get out of it, which is what Nick and I talk about. We don't talk about the rape in our discussion, but the way it's handled in the film Keep in mind, this is a film from 1950s. It is a a Japanese culture film. And so it's no big surprise that it is handled with a kind of misogynistic glean to it. Uh, There is quite a bit of victim shaming going on. And, you know, in this day's 
woke culture, that's not acceptable. But again, this is a film from another time and another culture. And you just kind of, you can, it's okay to get upset about it. It's okay to, to be riled up about it. But that shouldn't be the primary thing that you look at in the film. And I hope you can overlook it to enjoy an absolute classic film. So here we go. 1950s Rashomon from Akira Kurosawa with Nick Irvin. The original movies you sent me were uh, quite a wide variety of films. Uh, you, you were picking Cool Hand Luke or Gattaca or Cemetery Man, which is a wide scope of movies. So <laughs> what kind of movies do you like? What, what, what's your wheelhouse? Well, I guess right there figured it out. It's, it's probably all over the place, but um, underlying all of that are is uniqueness. I think um, when my first, year and a half of college was film school. And so I've always, always, always been interested in films. Um, and so I think I can, you know, pick from any genre and find something that I like about, uh, a, a handful of films in that genre. Um, but yeah, I'd say my wheelhouse is anything that makes me kind of think, um, I'm less apt to go towards, well, everyone likes to just sit back and be super entertained, you know, <laughs> but right. Right. Yeah. I like the, I like the unique ones, the ones that kind of tell a story most of all, I guess. Gotcha. So what was your goal going to film school? Um, I was really interested in the cinematography side of it. When I was younger, I was always interested in photography and just kind of the the part of setting up and and I, before I knew words like composition and stuff like that I was yelling at my sister to like move the ninja turtle more to the right or something like that and so <laughs> <laughs> um cinematography definitely um you know directing creating um that kind of stuff so I think I was interested in all parts of it and I hadn't really latched on to exactly where I wanted to go um, and right. maybe that's why I didn't actually end up continuing through to it. But um, <laughs> yeah, right now I'm, I'm still in doing video production and taking photographs for people for social media. So I think the cinematography and the composition is what really interested me in that kind of realm. Nice. And it's nice that you found a way to at least relate that to something that you can continue doing. I know a lot of people who leave film school and that's it. There's no connection with that part of their life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely lucky. I kind of fell back into it because I was a high school science teacher. I was, you know, my other love uh, was biology and, and the sciences. So um, to come out of that and to fall back into a, a, a place where I could find that passion again, you're absolutely right, is is very, very special. And actually, I should take, you know, more more thought about that and, and be thankful about that. Oh, my heart goes out to you. I was a high school English teacher for 10 years uh, before I decided oh, really? to, to leave that out. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, you know, I've, I've left two years ago. So that was a big chunk of my life was doing that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. We had similar, uh, yeah, I was nine years. So um, yeah, it's, I always say the interactions with the kids and the students was absolutely unbelievable. And I love that part of it. Um, but there are so many other things that make it hard to, to continue on. <laughs> oh, I, I hear you, brother. That's exactly <laughs> it. Is I, I, I miss the kids, but I don't miss any of the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Perfectly said. <laughs> well, you didn't end up going with any of those movies. You went for, I, I, I want to call it a deep dive as far as <laughs> contemporary audiences go. I, I don't feel it's that that deep a dive, but uh, it, it's unfortunately not a movie that's that's all too common. And that is 1950s Rashomon. Um, directed by Akira Kurosawa, written by Ryunsuke Akutagawa, Akira Kurosawa, and Shinobu Hashimoto, starring Tiroshu Mifun, uh, Machito Kyo, Masayuki Mori, Takashi Shimura, Minoru Chiaki, and we'll leave it at that. And I apologize for my pronunciations <laughs> oh my to those who are a little better in, in it than I am. <laughs> So how do you describe this movie to a person who hasn't seen it? And there are a lot of people out there, but how do you sell this to them? How do you convince them that this is a movie worth seeing? Um, I, I think it gets harder and harder as time passes to convince someone of this, or, or maybe you can convince them of it, but once they start watching uh, to continue on um, because of the attention spans, I think of people nowadays. So the first thing I kind of give is a disclaimer that this isn't action packed. Uh, I'm, well, it, it actually is, but it's it's kind of hidden in right. camera movements and acting. It's not, you know, in your face, going to keep your attention 
by by the action we're used to today. So I give that disclaimer. Um, but then I'd probably tell someone that if you you know just sit and and really take in two parts of it. Number one, the visual aspect of it, which is which is gorgeous, as all Akira Kurosawa's films are um, are visually stunning to me. And the second part is the story. Um, the story is one that really kind of knocked people back, I think. So, so telling someone like, hey, sit back, enjoy, and really take in the visualness of this. Get disoriented by it. I think that was a main purpose for Kurosawa is to disorient people a little bit. And then also to think about the underlying story because that's, that's the big part that, that, really, um, that really comes through for, for everybody and why it was so critically acclaimed is – um, not only the visually, but the story of human human nature in a sense. Um, so it'd be a tough sell, but I think once people start going into it and 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 really taking in uh, that film, um, they're surprised. They're surprised that they enjoyed something that wasn't so crash, boom, bang. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would just say sit down and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so all the movies that are out there, you know, uh, uh, cinematic history. Why, why is this your choice? Especially because it, it's so different from the other three, which of course were, were separate from themselves. Uh, well, why is this your choice? Um, I think honestly, I was probably trying to show off a little bit <laughs> with, <laughs> with a film that's, um, you know, acclaimed highly by people who are really into film and, and movie history. Um, so, um, there's a lot of modern ones and, and ones out there that, that, you know, bomb and necessarily critics eyes, but I could have picked, but yeah, uh, maybe it was, you know, to be honest, Hey, and am I being honest? That's what this whole movie was about. Maybe, you know, maybe you're lying to us. Oh my God. Maybe I'm lying. But to me in my version of my thoughts, <laughs> it is, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really, I just want to, you, you said it. I'm surprised. Or, or your whole showcase is, you know, why haven't people seen this? I can't believe people haven't seen this show or this film. And so I did want to bring attention, hopefully, to, to a handful of people, if not more, about Kurosawa, um, not just through Rashomon, but once they see Rashomon, um, maybe they start digging a little deeper and they start seeing other films by Kurosawa and they get exposed to um, really his genius. So um, it was both vanity and wanting to showcase people um, – to something they probably haven't seen before. Well, and it, it's interesting how few people have seen Kurosawa, but have seen the films that they've inspired. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's it, right now it's heavily in pop culture, but you know, Star Wars, the original foundation for that from Lucas was based on Kurosawa's uh, Hidden Fortress. You know, yep. um, a, a lot of the Westerns that we watch are based on Kurosawa films and, and samurai films in general. And I find it interesting, you know, with going the Star Wars route, I guess, with Mandalorian, everybody has referred to it as kind of a, a, a Western in Star Wars. But my first thought when I was watching it was it, it's a samurai movie. Mm. I, haven't, I haven't started Mandalorian yet. So now you've really piqued my interest about it. You'll like it. If you like Star Wars, you'll dig it. It's uh, I, I, I couldn't get through it fast enough. The, the, the feeding it out week by week was, you know, old school TV and it was <laughs> killing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's tough to wait that whole week these days when, when we used to do it all the time. So what, what's your history with this movie? Uh, because again, this isn't one that uh, it, it, it's a classic. I mean, it's iconic. Um, you know, my, film lover friends know this movie, but I would wager that a large portion of my friends don't know this movie. So what is your history Mm -hmm. with it? How did you, how did you come to this film? So when I was in high school, I worked at a video store, um, mostly just because I could get, you know, seven rentals a night for free. Um, just being enamored by film in general. And I really wish I could remember dig back in my brain at that first moment that I saw, the cover, those old plastic hard shell covers of the tapes. <laughs> um, I wish I could go back to when I first picked up a Kurosawa film. I don't even really know which one it was. It was probably Seven Samurai, but I got hooked in high school on Kurosawa. Um, it was just, again, something that was different. And like you said, no one had heard of, but some kind of inkling came to my mind. And maybe at the bottom it said, you know, critically acclaimed director Kurosawa. So, 
my story with Rashomon is finding it in high school, working at a video store amongst a plethora. And I even got the ability, which was great. Once I started getting into Kurosawa, I convinced somehow the um, owner or the manager or whatever of the video store to actually order a couple of them that we didn't have and put them on the shelf. And so I ordered, you know, like vague ones like Stray Dog or um, Dodes Kadin and, and just these names that no one's going to know what I'm talking about, but uh, these other <laughs> Kurosawa films. And so started putting a couple on the shelf and I even had Nick's, uh, Nick's picks. Um, oh. Whoa, which sounds a lot nowadays like something else. <laughs> um, but Nick's. <laughs> Um, yeah, Nick's picks was like five films that I had up on a shelf and, and Kurosawa usually had something on there. So yeah, that's my beginning story with Rashomon is some naive, weirdo high school student watching some Japanese samurai movies. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably insufferably trying to convince other people to watch it, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. That didn't happen a lot. <laughs> In this case, a really good pick. So for those who aren't familiar with Rashomon, it, it tells the story of uh, a rape and murder, uh, but it tells the story, and I'm really boiling this down to a simplest form, but essentially it tells this story from three different points of view, and the story changes with the different points of view. And this has even inspired a psychological term known as the Rashomon effect, which is where different witnesses can provide a different version of what they saw and all believe that they are telling the truth. Yep. That's perfectly said. <laughs> and that is boiling it down. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, it's really simplifying it, but uh, so looking at the critical side before we kind of dive into the conversation about this, um, it, it sits at 98% at Rotten Tomatoes it sits at 98% at Metacritic. Uh, I always try to pull in a good review and a bad review, and I couldn't find a bad review to pull in. Oh. <laughs> uh, I always oh, try no. to go to Roger Ebert because that's the film critic I grew up with. I have utmost respect for his words, and his review of this movie is a work of art itself. If you have any interest in Rashomon, I highly encourage you to Google the terms Roger Ebert Rashomon and read his full review. But the quote that I pulled is the wonder of Rashomon is that while the shadow play of truth and memory is going on, we are absorbed by what we trust is an unfolding story. The film's engine is our faith that we'll get to the bottom of things. Even though the woodcutter tells us at the outset, he doesn't understand. And if an eyewitness who has heard the testimony of the other three participants doesn't understand, why should we expect to? The other review I pulled in is Michael O'Sullivan from the Washington post who writes, film buffs should love it, but so should anyone who appreciates a good yarn or two or three or four. I don't care if it's a lie, <laughs> says the peasant whose attempt to escape the rain makes him Rashomon's on-screen captive audience, as long as it's entertaining, he adds. It is. So, boy, where even to start with this movie? I mean, it's it's uh, a huge undertaking in itself, but I, I, I think you kind of hit on the cinematography from the get-go, and it's so intense in its simplicity the the opening shots are just rain on a deserted and somewhat destroyed temple and cuts around to just watching the rainfall and maybe you're right that uh, the the short attention spans of a lot of people today would keep them from drawing in further but that that simplicity and that just pure watching the rain really drew my attention in and made me want to see where this was going because he's really showing you nothing at the get go <laughs> and yet you want to see where this is going to go yeah and i think and that is enthralling so maybe maybe i'm completely wrong in the in the attention span thing but because even though, like you said, nothing's happening, like in your brain, a lot is happening with that. And that opening scene is, to me too, and, and going into film, he does so many wrong, quote unquote, wrong things um, technically in this film, but it inspired people to like start doing more artistic stuff. So in that first scene, he does these cut shots where it's far away and then it's, it, and then the next shot is like a little bit closer. And then uh -huh. a lot closer and like those cut shots are like technically what you're never supposed to do in film. You're supposed to, you know, transition differently, but you're just like being, being drawn in almost in these little quick bursts along with this bursting rain. Um, so that opening scene. Yeah. And the, yeah, 
it's awesome. I, I had a similar experience with what you're talking about. Um, I, I didn't go to film school, but I did study uh, radio and television production. And one of the things we learned in, in television production was progression of shots, the way that things are supposed to, the way that your shots are supposed to proceed, because that's basically been established and that's how audiences expect it. And I remember learning about that during the week and then that weekend watching Martin Scorsese's Casino. And he breaks every freaking rule we had been taught mm-hmm. in our class. And and yeah. that's why he's a master. And the same thing here, <laughs> that, that this is why Kurosawa is a master, because he can subvert those expectations. He can do something different and get away with it. Oh, I wish I could use words like subvert in this interview. I'd sound so much better. <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. So the story introduces us to our three kind of narrators, uh, a woodcutter, a priest, and this passing stranger. And the opening line of the movie is, I don't understand. I just don't <laughs> understand. Which is kind of where Ebert goes, that if we're told from the onset that they don't understand what they've heard, how are we supposed to as the audience? And what yeah. we learn is they've been to this trial over the the, the murder. Uh, the trial is actually not about the rape. The rape plays into things, but um, but it's about the murder of this man. And they start sharing the story with this passerby just to entertain him, but also that maybe he can make sense of what they've heard. And mm-hmm. over the course of the trial, we learn what happened in that clearing through the, the stories of a um, bandit wonderfully played by Mifune. Uh, yeah, Mifune. Yeah, who's so iconic. Oh, God. The wife shares her version of what happened. And then the dead husband shares his version of what happened through what? a medium. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's such a crazy little play there when, when he says, but you should have heard the dead uh, husband's story. And the guy, the commoner is like, what? What do you mean? He's dead. <laughs> and yeah, through some like psychic medium, he gets his part of the story told. Yep. And, and exactly what you just said somehow through some sort of psychic medium it's not explained it's just there's the the husband gives his testimony through a medium and that's enough and i love (laughs) jumping i guess to that i love the presentation of the medium because the wind is constantly billowing this lace that she's wearing and it gives it a very ghost-like appearance to the person who's supposed to be channeling the ghost Mm -hmm. yeah it it really disrupted me a little bit. Like I I rewatched it again um, last night. And as soon as I saw her, this medium, which I think is called a Miko. um, It was called a Miko back then is as soon as I see her on the screen, my brain went back and I was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be kind of freaky. Like the way she moves and the wind blows everything. And she's like spinning and kind of laughing. It it's disorienting. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's creepy as hell. Even today by today's standards. And this was 1950. (laughs) Yeah, pre-poltergeist and everything. And the ring, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like the ring-ish kind of thing. I can see that. I can see that, yeah. So we get the three different versions of the story, and in each in each of the three different versions of the story, someone different is responsible. The, the storyteller is the one responsible for the murder. Like they're yeah. taking credit for it in their own version. So mm-hmm. the bandit says, I did it. The wife I love how she presents it because you kind of have to connect the dots where she says, you know, I approached him with the knife in hand and I guess I fainted. Yeah. And when I I came to the dagger was in him. (laughs) It's like, okay, sure. (laughs) Yeah. We have no idea how that happened. And then the husband claims that he committed the crime himself, that he, he killed himself. You know, I find it interesting each version of the story, they're taking credit for the murder. Like you would think in a mm-hmm. trial or such that they would be trying to give the credit to someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that person behind me or before me said they did it. Okay, cool. We're good here. Like, and just yeah, walk we're off. We're done. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I did it. I did it. I did it. Um, yeah, that's a, that's again, another disorienting part of the film. I think a lot of the film is about kind of like throwing you off and disorienting you. So that was, yeah, that's, I I love how she, yeah, all these performances are just so amazing. Yeah. Well, and I, and I agree with you about the disturbing you, the throwing you off. Like when we first see the wood, the woodcutter who's telling the story came across the crime scene three weeks ago before the trial. 
and he was traveling through the woods and we see him pass a woman's hat, which is very distinctly a woman's hat uh, caught in branches. And then he finds something else laying on the ground and we don't, maybe I'm speaking just for myself, but we don't really know what that is until yeah, later when thing. they explain that it's a samurai cap. Uh, yeah. And yeah, then I he finds the ropes on the ground and he's following this trail of debris left behind by this event. And yet we're watching it with him of what is he going to find next? And <laughs> I also find it interesting. We never see a dead body when, when the body yeah. is found, we just see its hands up in the air caught in like hardened in a, in a grasp of some sort. Yeah. How creepy was that too? That scene or that shot of just the yeah. hand sticking up in like a, like a snarled. Yeah. Like agonizing position. Ooh. Yeah. And, and, and so the three different versions of the story, you know, with each one of them taking credit for it, obviously are very different. So how is a court supposed to decide who the guilty party is? <laughs> And, and then I go back to Ebert's statement about if we're told at the onset of the film that they don't know what happened, how should we expect to? And one of the things Ebert talked about in his review, and again, it's a wonderful piece of work, is he gives a bit of history of the movie that when the script came out, three assistants came to Kurosawa saying they didn't understand. <laughs> and they understood the words on the page, but what they were looking for was the truth, the resolution. And the story doesn't give you that. And I think that's brilliant of Kurosawa to be okay with not giving you an answer and letting the audience have to decide for themselves who is telling the right version of the story. Absolutely. And I think a big part of his uh, goal is for a majority of people to not be able to decide which story is true and to come to a conclusion of inconclusiveness, <laughs> if you will. Um, I like that phrase. The whole, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a hard time getting it out, but uh, I'm going to write that down. Conclusion of inclusion. Uh, um, it, it is. It, it really is to me. The point of the film is 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 to go through this film in a search for truth. Again, that's this disruption. You're disrupted. Then at the end, you're like, well, what was the answer? And then. Maybe, you know, maybe immediately, maybe a little down the road, maybe, I don't know, a day or two later, you finally come to the realization that like, that's the point is there is no resolution that everybody has their version of the truth and that everyone has these little lies and that, you know, oh crud, I wasn't supposed to come to a resolution. I wasn't supposed to know the truth because in essence, there was no truth in that. So Right. Exactly. I, I wrote down, I jotted down the line, uh, not from... Rashomon, but it's from a TV show I absolutely love called Babylon 5. There's a line of dialogue in there that said, understanding is a three-edged sword. And when they finally decode what this means is understanding is a three-edged sword. There's my side, there's your side, and there's the truth. And in hmm. this, I guess it's a you know four or five-edged sword. But the, the <laughs> other thing that I – it took me a day after I wrote that down in my notes to realize – my experience coming to Rashomon was actually through Babylon 5, that there were some novels written about it. And in one of the novels, one of the characters references Rashomon to the point that I was like, oh, I have to check out this movie. So I find it interesting oh, cool. that, you know, 20 years later, I'm rewatching the movie and it's reminding me of a quote from the TV show that originally inspired me to check this movie out. <laughs> it's very, yes, very circular. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, that's 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 an amazing part about film too. That's so cool. Just bringing you back to different times, not only, you know, in your life, but you know, in the film and stuff. That's, that's awesome. That's cool. I love that three edged sword. The, yeah. My story, your story and the truth and yeah. uh, <laughs> all equally as sharp. <laughs> so the thing that made this movie particularly notable at the time is that the crime happened three weeks ago, but we see it happening through these three different narratives in flashback. And According to Ebert, this is like the first cinematic use of that device of using flashback on screen. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that Ebert um, summary. Um, yeah. I didn't remember that, that, that this was the first, uh, it makes sense. The first use of the flashback, especially so, so um, vehemently used. I mean, it's, it's the whole movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, a large part of the, the film's story is jumping back and telling us 
that version of the story, whether it's the husbands or the wives or the bandits. So, yeah. Yeah. Which inspired a ton of probably, you know, we could probably find a list of, you know, a couple dozen movies that have used flashbacks, you know, to portray the most, most of the film. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but. The first one that comes to mind for me is Usual Suspects. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, darn it. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> and, and then, <laughs> and then I, I distinctly remember there being a Simpsons episode that's framed very much like this is. Ooh, I got to find that. Yeah, it's an early episode um, where, if I'm remembering properly, Bart is working for the mob and something happens to Skinner and we get different versions of what happened to Skinner and finally we we get the truth. But where both usual suspects and Simpsons differ is that they do give you an answer at the end of the movie and Rashomon doesn't. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned the performances earlier, which are all fantastic, and and several of these actors are ones that Kurosawa would work with time and time again. But I feel mm-hmm. like we we have to single out Mufune's performance as the bandit, uh, Tajo Muro. Oh yeah, and uh, his his performance as this bandit is so unsettling because <laughs> he's kind of slimy. And kind of withdrawn, and then suddenly he'll burst into these fits of maniacal laughter for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) Yep. He's crazy. (laughs) And it's like brilliant presentation, the way that he chooses to to portray this character. And I, I love some of the subtle choices he makes as an actor, Um, you know, when they're walking through the jungle, when he has... Uh, when he's leading the husband away, trying to because he's he's going to murder him, uh, he he's going through the jungle and he's constantly smacking at his skin in different spots yeah. where obviously there would be bugs crawling on it. And I don't know if there actually were bugs crawling on him or what, but it's it just adds this reality to his performance. Yeah, uh, in fact, when I was watching it last night, <laughs> he did. Yeah, he slapped um, like his neck, and I didn't do it, but I so wanted to rewind it and see if there was actually a bug there, like if that was just kind of impromptu. Um, but yeah, he does it a couple times, and and you don't think about that. You don't think you know an actor doing some subtle thing like swatting a fly on his skin, but the way he does it, and and the the way the camera just kind of stays on him afterwards, I think it just adds to his character. And, and I want, I going back to his laugh. It, it is uh, to share Mifune, If people said, who's my, my favorite actor, I'll probably say, you know, Paul Newman, but um, <laughs> I have a, if I have a second one, it's to share his performance, his energy, his like wildness um, in, in most of the films. And he can do serious ones too. There's a couple Kurosawa films that he's like, you know, in a suit and tie and he still performs wonderfully. But that laugh, this movie's almost worth watching for anyone just to see his performance and his maniacal laugh. It is unlike anything I've seen after that. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. He's, he's just crazy. He's wild. I love him. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. And uh, I, I haven't seen any film where he's in a suit and tie, but I will have to check that out because uh, I, I, he's, I, I mean, I, I've seen him in other stuff, so I know he's more broad than just the bandit that he plays here, but his performance here is so, I just couldn't imagine another actor trying to do it the way that he pulls it off the way he, yeah. the way he flops around on the ground when he's telling his story. And he's, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's body language and it's, uh, uh, the choices he made as an actor are just brilliant. Yeah, he's like a vehement, unleashed animal, uh, <laughs> but he does it well. It's not like it doesn't grind your teeth a little bit, or it doesn't like you know. Put, it's not off-putting to you. It's adoring. It like makes you adore him a little bit more. And like you said, he's a bandit and he's slimy, but you know, I didn't, I didn't hate him at all. Like <laughs> you know, I thought he was. I was like, oh, he's a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he's he, he's almost lovable. I, I don't know that I would go that far, but he's. Yeah, I mean he's 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 an entertaining rogue, I guess is the best way to put it. Oh, nice. I like that. So yeah. uh, Stray Dog, by the way, I hope I'm not wrong in that, but Stray Dog was when he was um he played like oh man, it's been oh gosh, over a decade for sure. Um 
I, I think he plays either a lawyer or a detective. Um, and he's, yeah, he's got this like fedora and, and suit and tie but just for reference. Yeah. Stray dog is what I was thinking of for that. I will definitely have to check that out. Cause that's not, that's one I definitely have not seen. So I'll add that to my proverbial list of films to check out. <laughs> is that also a Kurosawa film or is that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's Kurosawa as well. Yeah. I wish I was better versed in Kurosawa's films. I love the ones I've seen, but I haven't seen enough of them. Yeah. I think there's somewhere around 30 of them that he's done, um, that he did. And, and speaking of the actors, they're, they're in most of them. I mean, Tashir Mifune and Takashi Shimura, Takashi Shimura is the woodcutter in this. Um, yes. I think Takashi Shimura is actually in more films than Tashira Mifune. I think Takashi Shimura is probably in out of 30 films, probably in like 25 of, of Kurosawa's films, something like that. I mean, I could be a little off, but um, yeah, no Kurosawa loved working with the same people. So when he found people like these that he liked working with, he would continue to use them. In fact, it was, it was kind of understood in the Japanese film industry that if you worked with Kurosawa and he didn't invite you back for a future film, then he didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You weren't coming back at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there, yeah, there's something to be said about that. That you know, someone who a, a director who is you know tops like in most people's lists um, was able to utilize those actors, and it says a lot about the actors as well that they were able to play all these different roles and, and perform so well in them. Um, I think the, all the performances in in that film. Uh, I mean, the priest was very in the background. Um, but even the commoner that came in, but he has you know? subtle little moments that make him exceptional. Oh yeah. When they find the baby, the way he, he holds the baby and the look on his face, kind of the, it's not even the look on his face. It's like the energy that he's carrying when he's trying to decide whether to hand that baby over, hmm. uh, is just a, yeah. a, an amazing moment on screen. And that's all the actor because. Because, you know, the, the, the camera is holds the shot, so the actor gets to control the energy and gets to control the scene some more. And I love filmmakers who, who do that, who let the, the actors make those choices and convey those on screen with longer takes. God, yeah, that's, that's something else. And that's, that's – if we can recognize that in a filmmaker, then, yeah, that's where the genius comes in. Instead of zooming in on their face to show – emotion if they can just be like no wait hold it let him go through this let him go through the process boom we got it kind of thing um and yeah with the priest you're right he's in he's he's very or he wants to portray at least an innocence that that humans are you know that there's good in the world and that you know i don't believe in in this bad and and there's one where he's leaning up against a post and the commoner comes up and he's kind of like jabbing him a little bit. He's like, what do you like? You know, life is crazy. You know, life is terrible and all this. He's like, no, I won't believe it. So he gives us a portrayal of, of a side that that doesn't necessarily balance the other actors and the other, or the other characters. But um, yeah, I enjoy, I didn't mean to talk bad about the priests. Oh no, <laughs> no you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> yeah. But all the performances were, yeah, as usual, spot on for Kurosawa and, Takashi Shimura, again, just to go back to the woodcutter, his facial expressions can show so much, uh, not just in this film, but in Seven Samurai and, and in Dodzkaden and, and these other ones. He's just, I love, I don't know. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm overdoing it on how much I love these actors, but they just give something that I, I don't see all the time in film. All right. Do you have to choose Shimura or Mufune? Uh well, if we're going out into the woods and getting crazy, Tashira Mifune. <laughs> uh, just to just sit down over a over a coffee or something and like really be enthralled by someone's life, Takashi Shimura. So, um, but I, I I lean towards Tashira Mifune for sure. I think yeah. I think he just makes me smile and just I want that energy and that wildness and freedom, um, at least that he shows on screen. Yeah. And and while we're talking performances, I also want to point out uh, Machiko Kyo, uh, who plays the wife. Yeah. The the way she because she has to, I think, out of the three who have to do the scenes over and over again, I think she has to do the most varied performance because yeah, in the the bandits version of the story, she's very meek and subdued and in her own version well no because no i guess that's the, i guess it's the husband's version of the story she's meek and subdued because uh the bandit specifically says that it, there was a um 
a, a passion. Yeah, there was a fierceness in her that he identified. Yeah. But in her own version of the story, she has an even greater ferocity. And then, as I said, she goes to that, I guess I fainted. And it's like, there's this ferocity in her presentation of her in the story. and But she doesn't want to cross a line, I guess, because of the role of the woman, especially at that time period. I, I, don't, I don't think she could actually admit to murdering her husband. So I think that's part of mm. why she has to do the, I guess I fainted. Uh, you know, we all can yeah. read between the lines, but. <laughs> yeah, pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, her performance is. One of when she there's, I don't remember exactly when it was, but when she switches from super upset, I mean, her, she's dramatic. I mean, this is, she's throwing herself on the ground. She's like, you know, she's playing this part super, super dramatically, which works perfectly. But then there's one spot where she just stops on a dime yep, and turns and just starts kind of like snickering. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> it throws you back like this woman was like super upset and crazy. And now all of a sudden it's like, it's almost kind of like when a plan comes into their head, but, but it's like more than that. It was, it was such an instant cut off. All right. Now you guys are going to fight for me kind of thing. Yep. And yeah, her performance of, of being able to switch and you're right in the different stories, she has the most varied role to play. And well, the husband doesn't have my, I mean, he does a great job, but he's very subdued in, in pretty much every story. Um, at least when he's tied up. And so, yeah, her, her performance of going from one extreme to another is great. And you don't see it right away. I think in the beginning up into a certain point, she's very, she's very kind of, uh, I guess I'm using subdued a lot, but she's a little bit more subdued. And then she starts getting into her story and it starts growing. And then you're like, wow, this, this woman is, is wild. She is, she's got that fierceness, like you said. Yeah. Or like to, yeah. When I said, well, and I, and I distinctly wrote in my notes about how she does, she, she goes in the bandit story. She goes from being very docile to this ferocity. You know, she's attacking mm -hmm. him with her knife. She's biting him, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, There's, yeah. And he, you know, of course he claims that that's, that's what he found appealing about her was that ferocity, but it's, it's something else. Yeah, she's all over the place. Oh man, yeah, that scene where right off the bat, the first version of the story when she's fighting back immediately, you at least I felt in my chest just this emotion of hers that she was portraying this, you know, she she wasn't going to do anything to him. She wasn't going to end up stabbing him with a knife. Although there was one point where <laughs> the person I was watching with was like, ah, oh. <laughs> like thought he, she was going to stab him. But it's just she she just kept going at him and and yeah, I don't know. I felt that scene a lot the way she was portraying this this raw emotion of like hatred towards him at that point. All the fight scenes were great and they were all different. They were so yeah. different in every story. The the fighting between uh Mifune and I don't know the actor's name, but the the husband the bandit and the husband. The three different versions, or eventually four, I guess. Eventually three four. I was gonna get to that, but yes. <laughs> oh, Oh no. Um, yeah. The, the three versions, I mean, um, were so different <laughs> all except the first one. So the first version, I'm just going to kind of tell this. Yeah, absolutely. The first version when they're fighting, cause you know, something happens in pretty much each one of them where, uh, the bandit cuts the rope off of the husband so that they can fight, you know, the honorable kind of thing. And so in the first version, it, it's a decent sword fight. Like it's really good and it goes on for a while. And I love that it's not cinematic. Uh, and I guess what I mean by that is it's not like the choreography is definitely there, but it's not like, let's make this look really cool with like, you know, first I'll go left, then I'll go right. There's a lot of misses, but it's it, not but it an works. Errol Flynn uh, level of, of choreography. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I <laughs> like there's some, there's some stumbling, there's some running away. Um, but the first flight fight is not, is not that bad. They fight pretty well. In fact, the bandit in the courtyard during the, the, um, during the trial says, you know, oh, and this is his version. So of course it's like an amazing fight. And, and he won, he was like, this guy was amazing. He crossed swords with me 23 times and no one has crossed me more than 20 times. Oh, ha 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 ha. Right. And so that's the first version of the fight. And then before you move on, the, the bandits version of fighting in that fight is really wild. Like he's all over the place. He has that laugh mixed in. I mean, it's, it's, you're right. It is not a highly choreographed fight, although it is a choreographed fight, but there is definitely a style to it that makes it really fascinating to watch. 
yeah, all of a sudden, I wonder how long that lasted. It was a long time. And without all these crazy scenes or something exploding in the background, <laughs> I like right. I was very entertained over that entire sequence of running around, laughing, missing, and then hitting a sword and then dropping a sword. Yeah. His style, as you said, was, was, um, it was, it was great. I think it was, <laughs> yeah, it was very entertaining without being too crazy. And yeah, so their, their, their fight scene in the, in the following ones is pretty horrible. <laughs> I mean, the scene <laughs> is great, but, but their abilities when they're shaking. So, okay. So in, in one of the other versions, I don't remember if it's the wife's, I think it's both. They're, they're really bad at fighting. Do you remember? Well, it's the, it's the final version. So the, 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 and I was going to get to this very soon anyway. So the, the, the interesting thing is we get three different versions of the story, but then the passerby realizes that the woodcutter has been lying this whole time. So we've <laughs> not only do we have unreliable narrators in the three narrators telling their story, but it turns out the woodcutter saw the whole thing and the version <laughs> of the story that he depicts the sword fight is awful. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. There's that last one. It's, t- it's, it, it hurts to watch because <laughs> you want these guys to be good swordsmen and you've seen them with their abilities before. And now they don't even want to approach. They're, they're running away from each other and like swinging with their eyes closed and like falling when he flops on the ground, when the bandit Mifune flops on the ground and starts swinging and like almost covering his own eyes. You're just like, Oh, come on, man. <laughs> you feel so bad when he first picks up his sword and can't run away because he does a lot of back and forth, you know, dodging, running away, that kind of thing. When he finally holds up his sword, his hands are shaking. Oh, shaking so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you see, Oh, and I love that, that scene where the shaking swords come in, like the shot is of her in the background and you see two swords, the tips of the swords come into scene and they're both shaking. And they yep. get closer and closer and closer. And that, that shot is it, it's something that I'll always remember. That is those shaking swords coming in and her right in the middle um, of it all is, yeah. Yeah, they just couldn't even hardly hold their swords. They were so nervous and scared and out of breath. <laughs> and, and you almost recognize why they would tell a different version of the story, if nothing else, just to make themselves look better. <laughs> yep. I mean, and that's right. That's what we do. We tell, you know, fabricate or inflated stories. Well, maybe it's just me. I don't know. I do tell inflated stories, even if slightly, you know, we, we fool ourselves. I think that was one of the big quotes either from, I don't remember if it was from someone analyzing the film or at the end where they're in the Rashomon gate, where they say, you know, everybody lies and, and even lies to themselves. So you don't even yep. know. You you really do think that is the truth that you're telling. Like, I fought so well. I was like awesome out there. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I used to do it when I played soccer. I was like, yeah, did you see me? That was a great game. Um, but yeah, we all inflate ourselves. And, and that's the lie is within what we think is our own truth. And, and that's part of why, even though in theory, the woodcutter is telling the true version of what's happened. We don't know as the audience that it is the truth because of that exact statement that we all lie. We even lie to ourselves. And so the woodcutter may be changing the story as well. Yeah. And, and we were kind of trained throughout the film, right? To, to think that way. So when he starts telling his story, you're like, okay, well, we don't know. Whereas in most movies, I think that last story becomes the truth and, and everything's tied up in a nice little bow, but we're sitting there saying, no, this, this is going to be fabricated as well. Yeah. At least exactly. that's, that's how I, exactly. That's right. and, and that's part of why for me, this is such a joy to go back and watch because we are so trained by contemporary films of that formula that if you do hear two or three different versions of the story, the last version you get is going to be the truth. And this movie, you know, subverts that by saying, you don't know the truth. You're going to walk away not knowing the truth and you have to be okay with that. And you know what? That's kind of life. Ha! Nice. I love that. I love that summary you just gave. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. You're not, hey, guess what? You're not going to know the truth and guess what? That's life. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you, you mentioned her, her furiosity, the wife's furiosity early in the movie and about, about three quarters of the way through the movie, you, you get this line about how the demon living in Rashomon fled in fear of the ferocity of man. Mm. And I just, I find that really interesting that they painted, especially, well, I mean, I pay, they paint the bandit as kind of being ferocious as well, but they paint the woman as being this ferocious thing. 
and then they get that line in about the a demon left due to the ferocity. <laughs> yeah, right. That's got to be bad. <laughs> I think that's a cool little bit of a side story, and I think Kurosawa did that a lot. Um, this post-war kind of commentary about he he really tried to build up and, and like support post-war Japan, but then with these like with that gate um, uh, that that man has all these issues and these problems and 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 the the what am I trying to say here the you know, the, the, the part of man that is, is bad and evil yeah to, to scare away a demon. And I think the, the commoner, uh, says it a couple times, even talks about how, how crappy like people are and, mm-hmm. and how rough life is. And even when he's like, I gotta leave, like, I'm, you know, when he steals the stuff from, oh, I won't, I guess we'll maybe talk about that in a little bit, but even when he's doing wrong, he's like, Hey, you know, I envy the dogs right now. <laughs> like, like times are rough, basically as rough as that gate was falling apart. A demon even left it. It's so bad. So I just, I kind of like that side story that they keep coming back to. And some people may, may say it takes away from the whole truth story of the main, of the main storytelling to have that side story of, of the condition of man. But I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was no, funny. because it's, it's spread throughout. I mean, there, there are little lines like that spread throughout about, about the the condition of man. I mean, it is kind of a, a very existential movie in how it addresses man is not good. You know, when the bandit story is done, the commoner says, you know, it's human to lie. And when the woman starts telling her story, he makes the comment about you, uh, women use their tears to fool everyone. They talk mm-hmm. at one point about how goodness is just make-believe. You know, uh, no, I yeah. I think... I don't think that side story is a distraction from the main story. I think it's an illustration of the point that Kurosawa was trying to make with the movie, which is, you know, people suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go see this movie. You'll, you'll uh, better understand how people suck. <laughs> but that's why I think the important, the, the ending of the movie is so important, even though it's a complete departure from the murder that's been at hand at the heart of the whole story, that, that final scene with the baby. And they, they find the crying baby and its parents left it and the, the commoner is ready for it to just – he's ready to – he's willing to leave it to die. And he's, as you said, he steals the, the meager possessions that were left with the baby and the priest wants to care for it. Yeah. And, and when the, the woodcutter agrees to take it, you know, what, what, it, what is it said is um, I, I don't even understand – I don't understand my own soul. You know, that, 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 that's how complicated man has gotten is that we, we, we lie and we steal and we cheat and we don't even understand ourselves. But at the end, hopefully we can do something right so that we can continue to have faith in mankind. That, that one act of taking the baby allows the priest to continue to have some faith in humanity. Yeah. Right at the brink, right when he, he was hopeful the whole time. And then when the woodcutter came to take the baby, he thought he was going to steal. He said something like, you're going to take what's left. And, and so right at that moment where the priest is finally like being super, you know, cynical or like, or not trusting that's when that, that sequence. And that's when, that's when Takashi Shimura's face is amazing when they cut and show his face. And he's got this like kind of downturned, like kind of like wide-eyed upset frown on his face, the priest, you know, it's funny. The priest like is totally for man and like fooling himself that man is great. And then at that last moment, he thinks men are horrible. He's trying to steal something from this baby and he's wrong about it. I love that turn. And finally he's like, okay, you're the reason I can trust again in mankind. Right. And so even though Kurosawa has spent, you know, the, the duration of the movie saying bad things about humanity, he does and, – and he doesn't give us the truth. At the end, what he does give us is that there is hope in humanity. I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. uplifting ending. It is. Yeah. Did the, I don't think the rain stopped right when that happened, did it? Or did it? It, it stopped <laughs> shortly before that. It, it stopped after they finished telling the stories. So yeah, the rain, the rain oh. had ended at that point or had, had waned, I guess. Because it was a pretty intense rainstorm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His autobiography talks about like bringing in these like three or four fire trucks and like really trying hard to get that rain to be torrential. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, he wraps it up nicely, um, gives us a little bit of hope after, you know, seeing all the lies and everything. <laughs> so that's, that's good. That's always good. 
<laughs> so so what what do you think happened what do you what do you think is the oh man <laughs> <laughs> um I, I i think my brain tells me like my my film watching brain once kind of that that first occurrence the abandoned story where it's a great fight and all that to happen um but i think man i I don't, I don't know if I want to make a decision <laughs> on that. I, That's fair. That's a good answer right there. Yeah, because uh, I think I want to stay with what Kurosawa is wanting us to, to think and not that there was an actual actual version. I, um, I don't believe the fact that she killed him. <laughs> For some reason, out of all that, that's the one thing I don't, I don't believe. Not because she fainted or anything like that, but just, yeah, I don't know. Gotcha. Okay. Actually, no. You could have done that for sure. I don't know. Yeah, I have no clue. I think the version of herself that she presented is capable of that. I don't think it's what yeah. happened, but I think she was capable of it. Yeah. I love that. I love that you you don't know the capabilities of them necessarily. Well, her, I think in all the stories you kind of know her capabilities, but you know, the the bandit Mafune could have been like a great warrior bandit because of his reputation. But then you see that version of him that's actually kind of terrible and you could see where reputations can proceed, you know, could be actually not, not real. You know, maybe he's gotten lucky in a couple cases where he won some, I don't even know how he caught the guy to tie him up. Like, (laughs) well, and we get that, we get that weird uh, thing where they found the bandit, like, on the on the coast with arrows sticking out of him and we never get an explanation as to that like how he got there yeah just that he the guy said he found him and he fell off his horse and i love that how he turns to how the bandit turns to the guy that captured him and he's like he's like are you kidding me fall off my horse you're out of your mind here's what happened i got sick like don't talk to me like that (laughs) kind of thing yeah they didn't come back to to that part of it uh oh what was i gonna oh there was something else about that oh well <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to hit on before we move into the end credits here? There was, but I just forgot about it. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe uh, uh, another version of you will remember it later on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Three o'clock in the morning. But uh, nope. I think I think we yeah we deconstructed it very well. Chris yeah. would be proud. <laughs> All right, so uh, we go to the algorithm says this is kind of a lightning round of movies that various algorithms have said you will like if you like this movie. So it's kind of a yeah, mm-hmm. you like it, no, you don't like it, you haven't seen it, or how the hell is that even related to this movie type thing. Uh, right. So first up, Yo Jimbo. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely, because that is probably this uh, another amazing performance by Tashira Mafune and. Um, it actually was Yojimbo and then Sanjuro was kind of part two of was like Yojimbo part two. Sorry, that was a long explanation. Yes, I have seen it. No, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. Like that's that's kind of what I'm looking for. So uh Seven Samurai. Uh top three movies for me. Absolutely. It's a long one, it's three and a half hours, although that doesn't seem that long these days. Amazing performances. Kurosawa took a western, turned it into a samurai movie, and then we took that samurai movie and turned it back into a western, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah, The Magnificent Seven, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. Okay. Uh, The Seventh Seal. Oh, man. I know I probably saw it a long time ago, way back in the day. Um, But I'm going to say I can't even remember a plot, so I don't know how that goes to this movie. I'm not sure. It's Bergman, so it may not have much of one. (laughs) Yeah, so it's probably a little little strange as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rules of the Game. Mm, No. I don't know that I actually know that is that a football movie no it's from 1939 is by jean renoir huh it's no, a I don't know that one. scathing critique of corrupt french society so it's a, a french comedy from 1939 oh renoir is the one okay uh, he was the inspiration for kurosawa to finally sit down and start writing his autobiography oh okay uh, but no <laughs> i haven't seen that one <laughs> all right faust crud no that doesn't even sound faintly familiar faust Yep. <laughs> oh no, I'm embarrassing myself here. No, I don't know that one. Okay. Uh Foreign Correspondent. This is a Hitchcock film. Oh. I'm I would like to say I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. Um I am, and I don't know this one, so <laughs> Okay. 
All right. Thank you for lying. Even if that was a lie, thank you for making me feel better. <laughs> oh, no, no. Foreign- I'm, I'm very honest on this podcast about movies I haven't seen, and that's <laughs> definitely one that I'm not familiar with. So, um, Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Redbed or Rosebud. Um, yeah. Um, holding out on the truth that I could see where that oh. kind of fit with this. Yeah. That that's final brilliant. Scene is when you finally understand what Rosebud is. I just assumed it was because it was another iconic filmmaker, but you're right. It is about the the holding of truth. That's very good. Wow. All right. And lastly, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, oh, I got to rewatch that one again. I have no clue why that would have anything to do with, <laughs> with, with Rashomon, but um, yeah, a brilliant. Uh, yeah. The that use of, so I think the use of light actually um, – I doubt that's like why the algorithm would pick it, but um, I, I always remember Doctor Strangelove as a, a brilliant use of of lighting for for a black and white film, um, the same as as Kurosawa always did. Oh yeah, and and uh, he used color even though it was a black and white film. Like he was insistent that the table in the war room was covered with green felt, like a poker co- table, because yeah. yeah. he wanted them to have that feel of being at a poker table. <laughs> and that's not going to play in a black and white film, but he wanted the actors to be inspired by that. That this movie just came up on another podcast that I listened to, and it was like, oh yeah, I really need to revisit that one because it's been a while since I've seen it. Same, same, absolutely. All right, we always end with the pop quiz. Four questions that are inspired by trivia or such from the movie. But as I think I told you in email, instead of doing Rashomon, uh, these are questions about specifically Akira Kurosawa. I've been so nervous about this all day. All right. <laughs> well, it's you know it's high stakes. If you fail this, then you fail at life. So, oh, all right. Uh, I'm glad I have my things in order. <laughs> all right. Number one, Kurosawa shares a background with fellow quote world cinema masters, Bergman and Fellini in that they all did what profession before they became notable filmmakers, a carpenter, B painter, C samurai or D circus sideshow star. <laughs> oh man. Well, Fellini would fit the circus sides. So. <laughs> um, man, I remember the story of Kurosawa starting when he, he went, uh, I think after his brother died, went to be an assistant director. Um, it sounds like painter. I, I would say they're, they're very much, uh, painter kind of style people. Yep. All three of them were oh, painters before right. they were filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. Kurosawa's, Kurosawa's family history is quite full of tragedy that he had. He was like one of four children and all of them died before he got into film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two, Kurosawa allegedly wanted to tackle what Japanese icon, but was never allowed to due to perceived expenses. A, Godzilla, B, Ultraman, C, Astro Boy, or D, Sinbad. Oh, what was the second one? <laughs> Ultraman. Ultraman? I don't yes. know what that is. Um, I'm going to say, I just don't see him trying to do Godzilla, but let's say Godzilla. He wanted to make a Godzilla movie. So yeah, absolutely. Hey. He <laughs> he was apparently huge friends with the guy who did the first Godzilla movie and uh, wanted to make his own Godzilla movie and Toho Studios refused because they were afraid it was going to be too expensive. <laughs> yeah, man, I would love to see a Kurosawa Godzilla. That would be right? very interesting. <laughs> Three, a, a slave to perfection. What was not a demand Kurosawa made as he strove for perfection in his films? A, making a stream of water flow the other direction. B, replacing a house's rooftop. C, making his actors wear their costumes for weeks before filming. Or D, the use of sharp swords in combat scenes. Oh, um, I don't think he would. Re- I don't think he would redo a roof. No, um, he actually see. did. He actually uh, had them remove a house's rooftop and eventually replace it for one of the movies. Oh, darn. Um, do I get a second shot or no? <laughs> sure, if you want one. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the clothing beforehand, weeks beforehand? No, he actually did insist that. He wanted it to look worn and lived in. He did not actually use sharp swords in combat scenes. <laughs> oh, I was wondering that when I was watching the scenes with Rashomon, too, if those were actually, like, I figured he might use the sharp swords, but... I don't know. That's that's scary. <laughs> I, I think if you want to keep working with actors, you can't let them get hurt by sword fighting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Last question. Kurosawa was a huge fan of what American filmmaker? 
A, Martin Scorsese, B, Clint Eastwood, <laughs> C, John Ford, or D, John Houston? John Ford. Yep. He was a huge. So three out of four, that's not bad at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm pretty good guesser. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Oh, um, I want to pr- promote um, uh, helping your community out, however that is in your area. But um, for me, I am creating uh, a podcast right now. It's going to be my third actual podcast that I've created. The only one that's going right now is Canyon Brats. And I'm a huge junkie of Grand Canyon. I live about an hour to an hour and a half away from it. And I'm always doing different off-trail adventures and and climbs and canyoneering and hikes in Grand Canyon. So created Canyon Brats. And so you can check that out. We're only three episodes in, or four now uh, episodes in. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm working on a Flagstaff Mountain Film Fest podcast as well. I'm going to be interviewing a bunch of the filmmakers uh, that are going to be going to that film fest this year. I live in Flagstaff, Arizona, by the way. So the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival. Um, and other than that... I don't know. Catch me if you can. <laughs> <laughs> I I was in Flagstaff. Uh, wow. I guess now it's five years ago. I was there for my 40th birthday. Uh, went to the Grand oh. Canyon, went to Vegas and then to the Grand Canyon for my 40th birthday. And God, it's gorgeous out there. Uh, it's, it's nothing <laughs> like we have in Virginia. It's such a different landscape, but boy, it is gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a great place to to experience a, a hangover. So if you went to Vegas first, then Grand Canyon, that's, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick, thank you for bringing this movie here. As I said, it's kind of a deep dive. It shouldn't be because it's a, a damn good movie, but uh, I really appreciate you picking this one out and letting me revisit it. Yeah. Well, thanks for allowing me to, to relive it myself and, and speak about it and really dive into it too. I appreciate it. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. I feel like we're starting to build up a nice little community, and I encourage you to come be a part of it. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or you can email me any comments or questions at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode which features a movie billed as a romantic comedy that is very short on romance and comedy. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I appreciate it more if you just help spread the word and help me build up some listeners. Share the episode with a friend. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Nick Irvin for providing this week's conversation, and thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in each week. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you, or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Well, come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Thank you.